I don't know how it happened, but generations of pigs have, have started realizing it that if they swim out to dinghies, that people will feed them. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 120, Linus Wilson and the Slow Boat to the Bahamas. Hey friends, thank you very much for all the applications to win the free lift ticket to Eldora Mountain Ski Area. The contest is closed and we do have a winner. Using the best that technology and 99 cents could afford, we randomized all the entries and the winner is, drumroll please, Joe Cavan. Joe, thank you very much for your entry. We will contact you, of course, via email to make arrangements for getting that free lift ticket to you. The rest of you, sorry you didn't win this time, but no worries. We'll do another contest in the near future. And now, on with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today's guest is Dr. Linus Wilson, and Dr. Linus Wilson has written a wonderful bestseller about a slow boat to the Bahamas. Back in 2010, Linus decided that he wanted to take up sailing, and so that's when he first sailed. In 2015, he and his family made it to the Bahamas in their sailboat. And he has recently taken up studying comedy. He says he will tell his first joke in 2020. So we'll just hold our breath until then. Linus is an associate professor at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette. He got his degree in financial economics at Oxford. But he is here today to regale us with wonderful stories about sailing. And we're glad he's here. Linus, welcome to the program. Hi, I'm I'm very happy to tell you about my failures on the water. (laughs) Well, it's been a little while since we had a podcast on sailing, and I know we have a lot of sailors out there that love to hear more of this kind of stuff, so I'm glad that we can get back to the water. Seems like we've been up in the mountains for a few shows. So, Linus, I gave just a couple of bullet points about you, but will you tell the listeners more about yourself and about how you got involved in sailing? Well, there was this volcano uh, in Iceland. You you probably know its name, Iafjallajökull. Yogurt. Exactly. Correct, what you said. Yeah, and uh, before that, we were very focused on European vacations with lots of walking around big cities. And then the volcano happened, and we couldn't fly to Europe. So over our summer vacation, we decided to go to the Caribbean. So I uh, uh, looked at a uh, Caribbean dictionary, and I picked out the, the name that was at the top. And so we went to this place called Antigua. And the thing about Antigua was that it's beautiful, it's quaint, it's rustic, but I wasn't able to use my laptop. (laughs) Uh, And so that forced me 
into boating. I was driven into boating out of sheer boredom in a blackout, and I uh, took out a kayak for the first time because I, I actually tried to take out a sailboat, which was at the hotel we were staying at, but I was not strong enough to, to carry the, the sailboat into the water, but I was able to get the kayak, and I paddled and I paddled and I paddled, uh, and it took me forever to go like 100 yards, and then on my way back... I noticed that there was this poorly shaven man who looked like he just got out of bed and he had a cup of coffee in his hand and he was sitting on a sailboat. And, you know, before that time, I had never considered that people actually live on boats, let alone sailboats. After that, um, I was able to beg and plead to my wife, who was six months pregnant at the time, uh, that she would help me put the little sunfish dinghy into the water. <laughs> uh, and she had no trouble with it. We went out sailing. The The sail attacked me and knocked me overboard. <laughs> I, I, she was not attacked. But, you know, after that, I was hooked. <laughs> That's wonderful. The first person that we had talk about sailing, I think, was episode number two, and that was Terry Hassler, and he told similar stories of when he was young, getting on the little Hobie cats, getting into all sorts of troubles, but he absolutely fell in love with it. It's been a lifelong passion for him, and it sounds like it may be a lifelong passion for you now, too. Well, until I come across the other thing. <laughs> the other thing. You've been sailing now. Let's see. You did the trip to the Bahamas from Louisiana, and you wrote the book about it. And so now I, I think that makes you an experienced sailor in the sense that you've written the book and everything. So why would you encourage people to take up sailing? Oh, uh, it, sailing itself is very simple. It It's very engaging. It's sort of, uh, I think it catches uh, your mind in a way that when we're very distracted today by a lot of different things, when you're, when you're actually sailing, especially on a smaller boat, um, it's very hard to not be engaged and and I, I think that it, that engagement is I think what catches people it's also it seems like you're getting something for free you know uh, what was amazing to me uh, was how hard I had to work on the kayak and how little I had to work on the sailboat to move a similar distance I've since gotten better at kayaking uh, and I really love kayaking and I've done some very small tame camping trips kayaking but you know at the time uh, i was just amazed with you know how did we get this free locomotion uh, and now maybe i'm a little more spoiled and i think about why the sailboat is so slow <laughs> there's a quote on your website i have to use this quote i think it's funny it says that jesus walked on water because the sail sailboat was too slow yeah you know sometimes it's faster to walk <laughs> That's fun. So from this experience in Antigua, you graduated to getting a boat and going on to the Bahamas. So what was your experience finding the right boat and learning how to, to operate it? It was a, a constant series of failures and humiliations. I would say uh, the first thing that we did was we started taking lessons. And you mentioned I have a PhD. My wife has an MD. We are very overeducated and overoptimistic about the value of education. Uh, and so the first yacht broker that saw us, instead of selling us a boat, uh, she said we needed to get sailing lessons. And we just kind of dove into that whole hog. You couldn't imagine going into a Chevy dealership and them saying, oh, no, 
you you haven't driven for long enough to buy this car. We won't sell it to you. <laughs> but uh, that's what they did in Antigua. So we started taking uh, lessons at the yacht club there. Then we took uh, ASA lessons. The ASA lessons are are great. Nevertheless, you're going to spend most of your time doing kind of the most useless drills known to man, the man overboard drills, which which are great in the sense that they teach you how to tack up wind and turn the boat and those types of things. But they actually don't teach you how to retrieve men overboard. But <laughs> but you know it is is a fun learning experience. Uh, we we chartered boats in in uh, Puerto Rico and in Saint Vincent's in the Grenadines uh, in the Eastern Caribbean. And you know that that was a lot of fun. Uh, and you know we learned a lot from our instructors, but usually not the things they tried to teach us. But we learned some other things. But Really, you know, the the sail training is not where most of the learning curve comes from. And the sailing, for someone that owns a boat that is not a small racer uh, or a a dinghy, the most difficult parts are basically everything. Docking, leaving the dock's not so bad. Coming back to the dock is the scariest thing ever. Uh, So the first time we bought our... uh, uh, we bought a 30-foot boat for $4,400. Um, first time we took it out, my wife was at the helm because I was too scared to death to helm. She had more boating experience than I did. She rammed us right into the dock, and we tore up the deck. Right then, I just started my love affair with West Marine, and we, I've been giving them more money than I've been giving my daughter. So, <laughs> so if you buy a $4,000 boat then West Marine makes a lot of money off of that transaction. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, you know, it's always the, a trade-off. Uh, do you give your money to marine chandler- chandleries like West Marine, uh, or you give out more money to boatyards? Slowly, we started learning that we might as well fund West Marine very generously and boatyards less generously. <laughs> You know what's good about that though is you really do learn your boat, right? You That's learn right. how to do all those repairs, you learn what every little doohickey does, and that matters. Yeah. So I mean I, I think the the first just right after we got the boat, uh it had some problems, uh which we got fixed at a boatyard and, and I told the boatyard owner, I don't need to understand engines because I've got a sailboat. Uh, and he just kind of laughed at me and he was right to laugh and you know that engine just punished me punished me after that uh until i started learning things (laughs) that sounds about right so a lot of people have not had the opportunity to sail in the caribbean like you have can you pick a day and just describe what it was like an amazing experience that would help us to understand why people love the sport well you know we uh, the Bahamas is not in the Caribbean, but saw some really magnificent places in the Bahamas. Um, the Bahamas is so great uh, because you can navigate by water. Uh, in you know, in Florida, you'll be lucky if you can see six feet down, but you can see way down uh, in the Bahamas. So if the water is blue, you go through. If it's brown, uh, you'll run aground. And if there's a big yellow cloud coming at you do evasive maneuvers because a mega yacht dumped their poop tank. 
<laughs> Got it. I didn't know what the yellow was about, but now I do. Yeah, the the waters are really beautiful. Uh, you know, I really loved uh, the uh, big major spot in visiting the swimming pigs. There's wild swimming pigs on this island in the Exuma chain of the Bahamas. Uh, my daughter uh, loved visiting it. So as long as you avoid the poop on the beach, it's great. But the, the, the pigs have kind of uh, started, I don't know how it happened, but generations of pigs have, have started realizing it that if they swim out to dinghies, that people will feed them. And this is usually the bigger pigs will swim out to the dinghies and get fed. The smaller pigs haven't quite learned how to, to swim yet. Uh, and they're they're pretty tame to pet on the beach. Uh, I had a little trouble with a mid-sized pig that I gave some pink cake to. But, uh, <laughs> Didn't that, care for the pink cake. Yeah, yeah. I I would say you know probably wouldn't feed him again. But you know if you don't feed the pigs, they won't they won't be on the beach. So somebody's got to feed them. You know it was always a mystery to biologists how the iguanas on the Galapagos Islands learned how to be, become aquatic animals. I think maybe you just solved this. It's actually what the <laughs> pigs are doing in the Bahamas. Were they transplanted there by, I mean, sailors or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. I I think actually that when people arrived, they were just surprised to see swimming iguanas. Yeah, we did. Vi- there are some uh, islands with wild iguanas, and we did visit an island with iguanas, but uh, we did not dare feed them. They have very sh- long claws, and we stupidly brought a rubber dinghy uh, to the beach. <laughs> oh, no. So we were very careful about that. There was another dinghy that had been ripped apart by them So right next to us. So uh, if, you, if you do visit the iguanas on uh, the Allen's Key uh, and Leaf Key, in the, uh, the really close to Nassau, really, you could take a day trip there from a charter boat if you, or from a, just a, a tour boat. If you're if you're on your own boat, you probably want to take a kayak or a hard sided uh, dinghy if you have it. And we had one; we just stupidly didn't use it. <laughs> you know what's so fun? And we say this over and over again on the podcast. For those of you that heard me say this before, I'm sorry. I'm saying it again. It's just a matter of getting out there. That's when you have those experiences and you make those memories. And you know, every subject we bring up, you have a story to go with it because you've been, you've gone, and you've done. And so, good for you. What fun. Yeah, yeah, I would I would amend my statement that what is the hardest thing? You know, it's it's the kind of the just do it type problem is actually leaving the dock. Even though it's not physically hard, it's kind of mentally hard to get to that stage where you you throw off those dock lines uh whether it's for a day sail or a short cruise of 20 miles or uh you know, a a cruise of over a thousand miles it it you you just have to eventually say i'm going to do it well let's talk for a minute about your extended trip to the bahamas you went from port to port you did a lot of different segments how far did you go and what was your i guess your your strategy for getting there and back again when i had the boat that we bought for four thousand dollars which we dumped thirty thousand dollars into and sold for half what we uh, put into it oh you did good uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a negative 50% return is pretty good in boating. I was looking at other boats, and I talked to this one old boater who, very common story, was too old to operate his boat, and that's why he was selling it. He had health issues, and he said that he took the boat uh, to the Bahamas via the Okeechobee Canal. So you didn't have to go around the Keys, you didn't have to really do... Or I thought you didn't have to do any really big open water passages to do that. 
And I thought, oh, that's going to be great. When I actually ended up doing that, I realized that the boating in Florida is so much different than the boating in Louisiana, Mississippi, that if you are on the basically south of Clearwater in Florida, or if you're on the east coast of Florida, the amount of traffic in the intercoastal waterway, which is kind of the chicken waterway, is just tremendous, especially on you know weekends and nice holidays. Whereas I was very used to being the only boat on the water in Lake Pontchartrain, which is an estuary uh, by New Orleans where we sailed. It's about 50 miles east and west and about 25 miles north and south. I was used to days where I would not see another boat or the only other boat I would see would be like a, a very small crabber, a crab boat, uh, just picking up crab pots. The, the traffic that you'll get on the ICW in, in Florida is huge. And the thought, uh, by the time I got there and I realized what the ICW was like over there versus the wide open sailing and open waters, uh, which I thought was bad when I was started doing it. But then having made the trip, I realized that the cruising ground of the Mississippi Sound and Lake Pontchartrain is really some of the best uh, sailboat cruising that you can expect. I didn't like being in super protected waters. I liked uh, more open waters with fewer people. Uh, and so we ended up uh, going around the Keys. Uh, and I, I, I loved both the passages, the night passages that I took from the southernmost towns before you get to the Everglades of Naples and uh, Marco Island into uh, Marathon and Key West. Uh, I, I loved those passages. There's almost no boats out there. Boats have a hull speed. Uh, if they if they do not plane, if they're not a gas guzzler that that burn uh, 200 gallons per hour, they're limited by their waterline length. And my boat probably can't go much over six miles per hour uh, because of that. And so, if you have a boat that can't go over six miles an hour, and you're probably not going to go over f much over five miles an hour. It's going to take you an overnight passage, and I, I, I loved both those overnight passages uh, to the Keys. I really liked uh, sailing uh, in the uh, Hawk Channel, which is uh, in the Keys, uh, which is also pretty wide open. It is, not, it is not in the Gulf Stream before you get to the Gulf Stream, but it's pretty wide open waters, and uh, you can have some really great sailing there. Now, are you going to have flat, calm water? No, but it is, it is really good sailing. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. Bent Gate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bent Gate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bent Gate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. 
Elevate Conditioning's mission is to construct customized exercise programs based on solid mechanics and general progression. These allow clients to improve athletic performance while addressing limiting factors. You may not be an elite athlete. You have personal and professional responsibilities that make demands on your time. That doesn't mean that you don't have athletic goals and a desire to improve. Elevate Conditioning is here to teach you how to train your body to be the most powerful, effective, and efficient vehicle possible. Additionally, Elevate offers small group training, wilderness fitness adventures, and long-distance sessions via video. Find out more at www.elevateconditioning.com. When you left Florida and headed over to the Bahamas, um, how long of a stretch is that? It depends on where you jump. The closest jump is probably a little under 45 miles, and that would be from Key Biscayne in Biscayne Bay near Miami to a cut called the Gun Key Cut, uh, which is right next to uh, an inhabited island. And most of the islands in the Bahamas are not inhabited, but this one is in uh, North Cat Key. So that's about 45 miles. So 45 miles, five or six miles per hour. It makes for a long day. It could, I except I didn't go that way. Okay. I went that way on the way back, uh, but on the, <laughs> on the way up, I was worried about the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is, is a, a very dangerous ocean current. It is supposedly the fastest ocean current in the world. Uh, I don't know how they define that, uh, but it, it or the strongest ocean current in the world, uh, but uh, it you have to be very careful about when you cross the Gulf Stream. And so the Gulf Stream runs from the Florida Keys uh, between Cuba and uh, between uh, Miami and the Bahamas and, and points north in the Bahamas. And so you have to cross the Gulf Stream. Uh, and in the, that's a north-flowing current of maybe two to three uh, miles per hour. In sailing, we talk about knots, which is 1.1 miles per hour. If you have winds that come out of the north, then the winds will oppose the current. The winds will oppose the current and the waves will stand up. One meteorologist told me that, you know, you should expect wave heights to be one and a half times what they would be under uh, normal circumstances. They're they're not gentle waves. They're kind of more rapidly sloping or people say pyramidal, but I think that's a little, uh, for what I was in, overstating. I did, I did not see my worst waves in the Gulf Stream, but I was also waiting for weeks to, to get a weather window. So usually most boaters, you know, with large cruising boats, our boat was a 31-foot island packet. That was the, the, our, our second large sailboat. Most boats are about 40 feet that go to the Bahamas um, in terms of sailboats. And that most boats will wait for a day when either you d- you have no north wind or the winds are very light, like less than 10 miles per hour to cross because the Gulf Stream current uh, can be uh, very rough if you pick the wrong day. Now, on our way back, we had it was like glassy calm. There was no wind. It was a really weird weather event. 
we saw a a little fishing skiff that maybe was 19 or 20 feet that had like a family of six on it. You know, it had 300 horsepowers in the back. They had a family of six. They had crossed the Gulf Stream from Miami and, you know, were spending the day at North Cat Key uh, like, you know, it was just crossing a river. <laughs> so you plan ahead. You wait for the weather window. You do all the the strategizing and try to make it as safe as possible. And then you see the little skiff. That's right. That's right. Make <laughs> <Thank> you <laughs> feel like a fool. <laughs> yeah. On the, on the way up, I, I started getting, you know, 10 to 15 mile an hour winds at the end and maybe three to five foot waves. And it did start getting rough. I had a really rough time trying to t- tie down the sail as I was coming into port. And that was really stupid to do that. I did not know that the the bay uh, in North Bimini Island, um, so Hemingway writes about his time in Bimini, and you see all his pictures of his huge fish, that the bay was so big and that I could have totally tied up this, the mainsail once I got into the bay and outside of those huge waves uh, versus, well, I won't say huge, but those very uncomfortable waves if you're standing on top of the cabin top. <laughs> big enough to knock you around. I'm sure that not everything went as planned. So what did you do when things didn't go right? You've got to have a good story about that. One of the benefits that I had on the trip to the Bahamas was that I'd made a ton of mistakes before I threw off the dock lines. Uh, And so somewhere in year two, I was convinced that doing it yourself on the boat and doing all the repairs was the way to go. And slowly... I even started doing kind of basic engine maintenance and stuff like that. You know, I, I was very good with the electrical. I had done a lot of work on the plumbing, and I'd done the the the, the basic engine maintenance uh, on on our new boat. So I had that kind of base. That being said, you know, uh, not everything goes right. Uh, even if you have your boat prepared, People think of weather as the big uncertainty, but there's also hostile natives. And so I came across a kind of a hostile native in Alabama. So I, I went to a fuel dock near this uh, restaurant owned by Jimmy Buffett's sister. <laughs> and I wanted to stop at the restaurant uh, to get a, a cheeseburger in Alabama. The fuel dock is right next to the restaurant. And so I was trying to use the lines of the boat to... Uh, tie the boat up to the fuel dock. And I I wasn't doing it perfectly, but I was getting there. Uh, But all of a sudden, the dock attendant who was on the dock decided to untie my dock lines that was holding me to the dock. And he said, you know, you need to get to the restaurant, which is like two feet away, by turning on your engine, which was, I guess, that's okay. I could have done that. Sailboats don't move very well in reverse. But uh, I did not have the engine on, and so once he untied me from the dock, the wind and current started blowing me away from the dock. And he also said he threw the lines onto the the boat, and I didn't check that because I was kind of flustered by the fact that I wasn't expecting to be untied from the dock. And I turned on the engine, and clunk, it turned out the line that he'd untied and supposedly put on the boat was dragging behind us so i wrapped the propeller oh no and so we me and my four pound dog daily uh were drifting for several miles down a very narrow canal which you could not anchor in uh lest you be uh, run over by a sport fishing boat or a tug 
we eventually were able to fend ourselves off the rocks and able to tie up to a a one foot wide uh, mooring line and stop there and you know in the december cold i was able to dive with my my wetsuit uh, and cut off the line and then get everything started and it's a kind of a long story. We had to call a diver to get Towboat US to go out because they wouldn't come out without me paying the diver. So I let the <laughs> diver cut off the last sliver of it. Uh, <laughs> if you are a boater, the most important thing you can do is sign up for SeaTo or so- Towboat US. Uh, because if you ever get a single tow, it's going to cost at least $300, but it could be much, much, much more. And it's something like $150 a year. And we must have had our boat oh, five times, six times in four years. So uh, it it's something that definitely pays for itself. But we had experience knowing that if supposedly the situation is a little uh, hairy, Towboat US, without your permission will call the Coast Guard. <laughs> they don't want to take care of it. They'd rather the Coast Guard take care of it. And so I had to pay the diver so that Towboat US would come out because the diver was the Towboat US guy. And Coast Guard came out after we were all done, but they certainly would not have come in time to save the boat. Well, I have to know, what about the cheeseburger and Jimmy Buffett's sister? Uh, I did not go back. <laughs> <laughs> it was getting dark, so I, I decided I'd better anchor and keep on moving. Um, I, I had had a cheeseburger in Alabama before. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> that's fun. You know, you've got a, a wild sense of humor, and I'm sure that's why your book is doing so well. Tell us about your book. I obviously want to make it kind of light. I, I don't think that I've done uh, anything that's unusual. You know, you know, I think there's probably about – there's nearly 20,000 – foreign boats probably that visit the Bahamas every year. But I also that think that means that, that that's a lot of people that are interested in doing that the cruise that we did. You know, I don't know about any uh, sailing narratives that have kind of focused on the Bahamas. The other thing is having been a sailing narrative memoir junkie, I listen to a lot of them. And, and you know, the most common type is a... Uh, circumnavigation narrative and circumnavigations i did the research on this typically take six years and six years is a long time period to put in a book that's uh shorter than war and peace uh (laughs) and and so what happens is that typically people will write the book at the end of their cruise i think that's what happens and they will forget all the things on the days that they were sailing and the whole details of all the adventures that they had day to day are lost they you you can't remember what the wind direction is you can't remember how you anchored you can't remember how you left the dock you know six years later and so you know i've read narratives where somebody crossed an ocean they crossed the indian ocean and they didn't mention anything uh, so what I'm trying to do with this book is to, you know, put people in the cockpit of the boat, what it's like to actually do this cruise and uh, what are the common difficulties you're going to face, or at least what were the difficulties I faced, and that'll give you an idea of uh, what it's like. So more of the play-by-play, day-by-day. Right. I think people are not interested in me. 
you know, I think people are interested in the sailing. I think they're interested in the boating. You know, I think they're they're interested in the adventures on the water, not necessarily the the long term friends I make. Although, you know, I I think the people are interesting too. So the name of the book is Slow Boat to the Bahamas, and let's see, it's over three hundred and fifty pages, right? Right. The Bahamas cruise was only a six month cruise, although I go back to when I start the first day I started sailing. I don't talk about when I was born, although that would be fascinating. <laughs> so do you recommend people that wanted to get into sailing? Is this, the, is this the book that they should get to get a general feel for the experience? I think everybody should buy my book, not just people that want to get into sailing. Okay, give us reasons why everyone should buy your book. <laughs> this is kidding. No, I, you know, I think uh, people that are interested in the Bahamas, uh, people that are interested in boating – uh, not just sailing, because I think a lot of the, the narrative is also relevant to people with trawlers. So uh, one of the popular things to do if you have a big cruising trawler is to do the Great Loop. Uh, a lot more trawlers do that than uh, sailboats. And my cruise covered a lot of the ground that they do on the Great Loop. So I made the, the Big Bend jump uh, in the Gulf of Mexico from Carabelle to Clearwater like they do the the Great Loop goes through uh, Mobile, Alabama, which I pass by, and it, it goes around Florida. If you're doing the Great Loop, you either do the Okeechobee Waterway, which I decided not to do, or, or you go through the Florida Keys, which I think is more fun. And then they, they go up to Miami, and a lot of people that do the Great Loop are going to go over into the uh, the Bahamas. And so, actually, if you look at the Bahamas, especially the near Bahamas, you know, there's there's a lot more powerboats than there are sailboats. It wasn't really until we got to Georgetown uh, in Great Exuma, which is, you know, they refer to as the cruiser's mecca, that we started seeing way more sailboats than powerboats. And, and so I think there's a lot of similarities between people that have trawlers and sailboats. Uh, my my dad is not a boater, and you know the first time he was on our thirty foot boat, our first one, uh, he said, "You know, I thought you would mostly sail, but you actually use it more like a hybrid, like a Prius." <laughs> so I'm not I'm not a sailing purist. Uh, I started may have started out as one, but I've I, I've turned on the uh, Iron Jenny a lot. Yeah, so. no doubt about it. So this trip. You took your wife, Jana, and your daughter, Sophie, right? They were on basically half the trip, and then half the trip I was just with my dog daily. So I had a, a sabbatical. I could have had a year sabbatical, uh, but I decided that a year sabbatical in which I spent nine months away from my, my wife and four-year-old daughter was not a pleasure cruise. Uh, and so I, I took a six-month sabbatical. And I also took that because hurricane season is six months of the year, right? So in boating, everything is seasonal. I know there's a lot of seasonality in, in mountain climbing and stuff like that, too. Uh, but hurricane season really dominates the thought of boating, uh, especially when you're going out to the islands. And so that's from... Uh, June 1st through November 30th. And so because my classes uh, basically end in early December, teaching in the fall made more sense than taking off the fall and taking off the spring. Uh, because I, you know, I'd have to move the boat uh, during hurricane season if I took off the fall 
in addition to my wife not being able to get off six months of work. She was only able to get off three months of work. It sounds like a, de- a delightful trip. And fill us in. How did Sophie do, your four-year-old daughter on a sailboat? Does that work with kids? Uh, yes. I think for the listeners, and uh, you can definitely do uh, camping with young kids. You can. I've seen people do uh, climbing with young kids. Uh, but it's it's a lot. I think you know boating uh, with kids is uh, of the adventure sports. I hate to call what I do an adventure sport compared to the other sports. It's kind of like comparing golf to football. It's it's a lot easier to have kids on board. That being said, most of the long term cruising boats are retired people, and that was probably the hardest part. Not having it wasn't having Sophie on board, but it was not seeing children we didn't really see any kids boats until we got to georgetown although i think had we looked harder kind of midway through our cruise we could have found them Uh, but we were preoccupied uh, with uh, outboard motor issues at the time and not so uh, preoccupied with play dates Uh, sophie has been sailing with us since she was uh, six weeks old and that was one of the reasons why i bought me and my wife bought such a big boat to start out with. So once we did our 101 lessons, we bought that $4,000 boat. And it was a big, sturdy boat compared to what we were we had trained on. And we put in a car seat for her so she could be strapped in so we wouldn't worry about the boat shifting and her uh, not being safe. And, you know, as she got older... Uh, we would use a tether. We tether her in when she's in the cockpit. Of course, she always has her life jacket. But it also means that you're typically a hand down in terms of sailing. So if, if me and my wife are on board, typically one of us is going to have to spend a good amount of time with Sophie. And so kind of one of the prerequisites for the cruise uh, was that you know, I had to get good at solo sailing. Mm, right. While doing your holiday shopping this season, be sure to stop by 180tac.com and pick up a camp stove for the adventurer on your list. The 180 Stove and 180 Flame are made right here in the United States and are sure to make your loved one a happy camper. Visit 180tack.com today. Slow Boat to the Bahamas is a funny look at getting the sailing bug, preparing for, and going on the big trip with a four-year-old and a four-pound dog. Linus Wilson recounts how his family sailed from New Orleans to the Bahamas in 2015. In its first week, Slow Boat to the Bahamas Kindle version was the number one bestseller in all three of its categories, sailing narratives, Bahamas, and cruises. And as you can tell from the podcast we had with Linus, this book's got to be a hoot. Pick up your copy today.
Well, it sounds like a wonderful thing to do with a family to make those memories, not just for you, but also for Sophie. And so uh, kudos to you for doing it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if she's convinced about sailing, uh, but uh, she is. Uh, what was nice was to get to know her beyond the shuttling her from school to work, school to work, nighttime, but actually spending whole days with her and interacting with her in a way that we would have never had we just been at home. Mm, yeah, that's so important. That's good. I want to skip to the rich uncle question. It's a it's a newer question we like to ask on the show, but I'm always intrigued by people's answers. If somebody came up to you and said, all expense paid, you've got a month or longer, do whatever you want to do, then what is your adventure going to be? I think if you had a bigger boat, then you'd need a rich uncle, but we have a pretty small boat, and I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, it the Island Packets are very sturdy boats. They have a full keel uh i really like the way their their decks are constructed they're very strong rugged rugged cruising boats and i have uh tremendous faith in our boat so i don't feel like i need a rich uncle to to fund future adventures so the plans that we have in the works now are i have summers off and i i would like to sail the boat uh part-time around the world and to do that, I need to get out of the Northern Hemisphere. The hurricane seasons run, generally run in the summers, uh, whatever hemisphere you are in. But I have North American summers off. 75% of around the world trip uh, going around by Australia, uh, down around South America, or, or not down around South America, but South Africa, uh, and then back up the South Atlantic. You know, 75% of that trip is in the Southern Hemisphere. Panama is outside of the hurricane zone. On two-month stretches, we could keep on moving the boat to new cruising grounds and then storing the boat without having to sail during hurricane seasons. And so it wouldn't be until this summer. uh, I'd like to get the boat down to Panama uh, before hurricane season or very early in hurricane season. And then from there... Uh, we've got many more years where uh, we'll be outside of hurricane season. Uh, we won't have to worry about how are we going to move the boat. You know, that's a lot of fun. We hear uh, some people go hike the Pacific Crest Trail all in one summer. Some people section hike it, and it might take them 10 years. But what you're talking about is kind of section sailing all the way around the globe. That's a cool idea. Thanks. I, I like it. I, I haven't heard anybody talk about it. It took me a long time to, to figure it out. Uh, but to be honest, most people that, you know, supposedly quit their job and, and leave to sail around the world, they actually only sail around the world half the year. And the other half of the year, they leave their boats, right? Or at least several months of the year, they leave their boats because uh, they've got other family commitments. They cannot, there's no such thing as kind of the endless summer and surfing uh, or the endless non-hurricane season just because of the the amount of miles you have to get, 15,000 nautical miles, I think, to get back into the northern hemisphere on kind of a trade wind circumnavigation so that you can avoid uh, having to lay up the boat during hurricane season. And and that's what boaters do. They typically stay in a safe port uh, during hurricane season. Either the boat's uh, in a marina or it's, it's uh, hauled out or it's on a, a special mooring. And, and so even full-time 
sailors just really they take a, a big portion of the year off. So it just makes sense. That's a great idea because people that have the opportunity like you have to take summers off and do things in stages, um, that that could open up opportunities that are maybe just a little bit less extreme than having to quit your job and commit to trying to make it around the globe with limited funding and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's amazing to me. I mean, if you look at the numbers of people that complete circumnavigations versus kind of the number of people that are guided up Mount Everest, right? Those numbers are relatively at parity before we had the the disasters of the last two years at Everest Mm. uh, and and the earthquake in Nepal. Those numbers are roughly at parity. There's probably more people guided up at Everest. You know, Everest is just uh, Russian roulette. It's it's a miserable experience. If you read any of these books by high-altitude climbers, you're going to be cold, sick, waiting in very cramped conditions for a long time, and then you got a shot at death, and you get to walk by uh, very disturbing dead bodies on your way to the top of the world. Uh, versus uh, a circumnavigation where you don't really have to exert yourself that much. Uh, you're going to spend your time on beaches and have swaying palm trees and Mai Tais at dusk. <laughs> for some reason, more pe- more people want to see if they can kill themselves on Everest. <laughs> well, you're making a great argument for uh, for warm water sailing. It sounds great. So what inspires you, Linus? You sound like an adventurous guy, and you're getting out there and doing it. What is your inspiration? I don't know. I, I, I you know, I just like the challenge. I like to uh, do new things. I, I enjoyed writing the book because it, it, it was kind of a new challenge. And uh, in all things, you're always trying to challenge yourself just a little bit more. Mm. It, it kind of gives life more meaning and purpose, doesn't it, when we set a goal out there and, and reach for it? Yeah, I, I don't think happiness is a destination. Uh, it's a journey. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So if people want to get a hold of your book then how do they find it? And do you have any discounts or promotions for our listeners? Uh, So uh, the book is available on Amazon.com. It is free for Kindle Unlimited subscribers. Uh, You can also download the first five chapters and uh, read those for free, regardless of what you subscribe to. And it is cheaper than a keychain at West Marine. (laughs) That's great. So free is a great price. We like that one a lot. So if you are a Kindle subscriber, you can get the book for free. Kindle Unlimited, yeah. Okay. And what is the name of the book again? It is Slow Boat to the Bahamas. By Linus Wilson. Yes. And if you want to find me, uh, you can find me on Facebook. I've got a little Facebook blog there. We've got a, a web page called Slow Boat Sailing. Uh, On the webpage, uh, we thank our sponsors of Future Adventures, uh, Mantis Anchors, Revere Survival, and uh, Fiorentino Para Anchor. Very cool. We'll put those links into the show notes as well. So all you really have to remember is AdventureSportsPodcast.com, and you'll be able to get to the other links to keep up with Linus and his family and their exploits. So Linus, how does your sailing benefit others how does it benefit you others society as a whole it benefits the marine services industry (laughs) no doubt (laughs) i i'm not sure that i'm changing the world here uh you know i think i actually wrote something about this 
The Icelandic volcano that scrambled air travel in 2010 uh, corrupted me better than Beelzebub himself could have. Iat Fiat La Yogurt introduced me to sailing indirectly. Since then, my finances have suffered. My once promising career has stalled. I'm less public minded and I'm absent from home more. <laughs> so I guess it's a net loss for society. <laughs> you know what I love about it, though, is that you're going out and having fun experiences and you're writing books and entertaining others and introducing others to the idea of going and doing and building memories. I think that's positive. That's a beautiful thing. All right. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, hey, can you close this out with a funny story? Not that you haven't had us in stitches for the whole show. There's just a, usually something's going to go wrong and uh, you have to deal with it. So when I uh, was in the Gulf Stream the first time on my own boat, I'd actually crossed it before uh, as part of a delivery trip uh, with somebody else captaining. But when I was soloing it uh, with my dog Bailey, I decided that we were in such deep water, thousands of feet deep, and um, my uh, toilet paper was biodegradable, that I might as well just throw it over the side because it's going to sink to the bottom and, and disintegrate immediately. And as soon as that happened, alarms went off on my boat all over the place. And so it is very clear to me uh, that Poseidon or whoever uh, <laughs> controls karma was very upset by that. And uh, he punished me and uh, I had to do engine repairs in the Gulf Stream because of that. <laughs> so take care of Poseidon he'll take care of you exactly <laughs> that's great well Linus thank you very much for your time today for the fun stories that you've shared with us and I for one would love to do what you've done sailing and, and having that time on the water time with the family and just the experience of getting to know the sea that part of the world that so many of us don't know well so thank you for sharing with us thank you and for all of our listeners out there as always, until the next show, get out there and have some fun. 